I'll be reading from the New King James Version. The scripture reading this morning is found in Amos chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, and you are like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Certainly a delight to see all of you here this morning. We appreciate the presence of every single one of you. It is warm outside, but it's nice and comfortable inside, at least in this, in this room it is. I was thinking as I was outside in the, in the sun yesterday in between clouds, I was thinking that we have a number of our, our uh, members here who are transplants from uh, northern states and even some here from Canada. And I wonder if about the time the dog days of summer hit us in Montgomery, if you ever wonder, what was I thinking? Just like if we were to try to move to Minnesota, probably I'd make it to November when I would be going, what was I thinking? But uh, right now, we're comfortable, and I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you've chosen the University Church to come and worship the Lord this morning. Eat your vegetables, clean your room, pay your taxes, don't forget to go to work, get to work on time. All of those are words of admonition that some of us need to hear over and over again. We need to be reminded of what our obligations and our duties are, and we also need to be reminded of what the promises of the future may bring. What we're discussing today fits in the category of something that we need to be constantly reminded of. And I know that this is a lesson that when it begins to unfold, you'll be thinking, I don't know why he didn't preach this on a, a fundamental Sunday. But the reason is a sense of urgency. I realize how long it's been since I preached on this topic. And I feel like I need to, as a minister of the gospel, to remind us of something that we already know but that needs to be urgently impressed upon our minds. The bottom line of all gospel preaching is, in fact, the admonition, prepare to meet thy God. If it isn't, at least it ought to be. And yet when we do that, sometimes we're lumped into the same group as the radicals who stand on the street corners in public places wearing their sandwich boards that say, repent for the end is near. And because of that, the reality, this warning, this message, sometimes is not taken as seriously as it ought to be taken. It's considered by some to be the sky is falling kind of rhetoric. If we accomplish nothing else today, I hope that we'll come to a sober appreciation for the charge, the need, and the challenge to prepare to meet our God. And yet we seldom do that for which we see so need. And so this morning I want to present some, I think, very biblical and valid reasons why we need to consider very carefully our need to prepare to meet God and to stay prepared every moment of every day of our lives. Reason number one is because of the absolute certainty of meeting God. You see, this is a Bible reality. It is a spiritual reality that is affirmed and reaffirmed over and over again in Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Romans 14, verses 11 and 12. On the New Testament side of things, Paul writes, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. Hebrews 9, verse 27, the inspired writer says, It's appointed unto all men once to die, and after that the judgment. The scriptures say that as surely as, as life and death is the judgment. In fact, as, 
Uh, sometimes we hear the statement, that's as sure as death and taxes. But in reality, the day of judgment, that day of reckoning is even more certain than taxes. Because I don't know about you, I've known some people who didn't pay taxes. And so here is something that is absolute certain. And he, Acts chapter 17 verse 31 tells us that there will be a day when all the world will be judged. Here's how the verse reads. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. So there's going to come a time when every one of us will stand before the great God and judge of the universe. Peter in 2 Peter 3 verse 10 calls that the day of the Lord. Listen to Peter's rendition of this same reality. But the day of the Lord, he says, will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, and all the things, all the works that are in it shall be burned up. Here's another spiritual reality that we need to, I think, factor in as we prepare to meet God. And that is that when we do meet God that day, when that day of reckoning comes, whenever God decides that that needs to be, We'll stand before God as individuals alone. The Bible teaches that over and over again. Think with me for a moment. Here's a man. He's a good man. He's a good provider for his family. He's a good citizen. He's a good neighbor. But he lets his wife stand for him in matters of religion. She's done all the church going, all the Bible reading, all the praying. She's done all the seed sowing. She's done all the spiritual training of their children. But in judgment, that man will stand before God alone as if he were the only person who ever existed. The same could be said about any woman in regards to her husband or any child in regards to their parents. The Bible says, in essence, we're not going to be judged by proxy. We will not stand in anyone else's shoes, nor will they stand in ours. But when we stand before God, it will not be as a country, as a state, a city, or even as a brotherhood, but alone as individuals. John, the revelator, said toward the very end of the New Testament, pen for us in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, John, seeing through the eye of inspiration, wrote this, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, watch this carefully. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Let's not miss the point. You and I are going to be judged according to what we have done, not what someone else has done. Nor will we be held accountable for what their actions may have been as they walked on this planet. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive the things done in our bodies according to that which we have done, whether it be good or bad. Solomon certainly agrees. In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, the wise man said, For God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. I don't know about you, but there ought to be a sense of sobriety, almost shock, that will create us to look more carefully at what God's word says on this subject, to allow it to inform us in our daily lives and help us to make the decisions that we need to be making on a daily basis for God. Maybe it's too easy to fool ourselves about ourselves. Paul recognized that. One of his favorite sayings was, be not deceived, as in Galatians 6 and verse 7. I'm simply saying that we need to do some personal evaluation, some personal examination before the judge of the universe does. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, that we need to, we need to test our own selves to see whether or not we're in the faith. We need to prove ourselves. 
I remember reading the story about Oliver Cromwell, who was going to have his portrait painted. And the man that he had commissioned to do the painting was someone who was noted in that day to do basically what we do with photoshopping, and that is to remove all the blemishes and make whoever it was that he was painting look as good as possible. When Cromwell's time for his first sitting arrived, he said, I want you to paint me just as I am, warts and all. That's a strong man, and that's a brave man. But when we stand before God in judgment, he's going to see everything about us. He's going to know our every thought, our every word, and our every action. Now, that isn't intended to scare us into living righteously, but it is a factor as we make these day-to-day decisions. One day, we're going to stand before the judge of the universe, and we'll see ourselves as we really are with all of our failings and all of our imperfections. That facade of pretension, that mask of hypocrisy, perhaps will be torn away, and all will be exposed, and we come to realize what really is most important in life. Maybe that's why Peter, and I think we read this last Sunday, wrote in his context regarding the second coming. In verse 10, we read a moment ago, when all the works that are in this earth will be burned up. And then verse 11, he says, seeing how these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy manner of living and godliness? In other words, Peter says, it ought to make a difference in how we live. If we understand that we are going to, no questions asked, no hypothetical situations involved, we're going to stand before God and be judged, how should that help us and be an incentive for us to live the way God would have us to live? Here's a second reason why we need to prepare to meet God, and that is because of the tremendous rewards of heaven. You see, they're not all negative. There are many positive reasons why we need to make sure that we're right when the Lord comes back. The Word of God constantly affirms and reaffirms the reality of a place called heaven. And I don't know about you, but as I get older, the more I like to think about and talk about heaven with my friends. That is, those who understand, people of faith, who long for that place as much as I do. It's described beautifully by John in the book of Revelation. And especially when you get to the last two and a half chapters, John begins to talk more about heaven than you will find any other description in the Bible. I remember sitting at the feet of my favorite teacher when I was in a Christian college, and someone posed the question, why don't you think the Bible says more about heaven? If that is our ultimate goal and destination, why is it there more vivid and exacting detail about heaven? And I'll never forget the instructor's response, and I believe he's exactly right. He said, if we really knew what heaven was going to be like, none of us would want to stay here. We'd want to go and be there right now. I believe there's some truth to that. Heaven is a place that described by John in one place as a beautiful city. That's not difficult for us to imagine. You think about some of the beautiful cities that populate this planet, some of the beautiful areas right here in our own country. You think about the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. You think of the rippling wheat fields of the Midwestern states, the rolling farmlands of Missouri the cities that populate our coastlines and some of the southern cities that we have right here in the southeast in the springtime are hard to beat. They're beautiful. But you put all the beautiful and all the great cities together and you still cannot compare with the splendor and the grandeur and the beauty of that city not built with hands. And as one brother said a generation ago, 
If reading the Bible and understanding what heaven, at least to some small degree, is like, doesn't serve as an incentive to make us to want to go there, you need to have either your heart or your head examined, and maybe both. It's a place where the Bible says in the book of Revelation that the only street is paved with 24 karat gold. Where the walls are of jasper, the gates are comprised of pearl, and the river of life that flows springs forth from the very throne of God. John says that heaven is like a bride adorned for her groom on their wedding day. Can you imagine? Usually when I have the privilege of tying a knot for someone and performing a ceremony, and the groom is standing down front. By the way, I always tell him the fact that you're standing down there waiting for her to come down the aisle is a microcosmic reality of the fact that you will be waiting for her the rest of your married life, so get used to it. But to see his face glow when she begins, turns that corner and begins to walk down the aisle. Never seen her more beautiful. In fact, sometimes I will ask him, what do you think? I've never seen anything so beautiful. And that's the way the Bible describes heaven, like a bride adorned for her groom. I believe that one of the very best things about heaven will be the fact that we will be reunited with men and women of faith in past generations and even during the spectrum of our own lifetimes. Think about that. Those men and women that we read about in the Old Testament will not have to talk about in theory. We'll get to meet and talk to. I mean, you want to talk to Moses? Spend some time with Moses. You want to talk with Job? Spend some time with Job. By the way, you think you've got problems? Spend 15 minutes talking to those guys, and you'll get some real insight into what problems in life are really all about. We'll learn something, I think, from talking to those men of faith. You know, I've got 5,000 years reserved just to talk with Peter and Paul. How about you? I've got 20,000 set aside just to sit and to talk to Jesus Christ, to be able to be in his presence, to sit and to talk to him as brothers. I want to be reunited with godly family members who have gone on before, people that you and I know that we still miss so desperately, but there's that hope. And more than hope, there is that blessed assurance that someday we're going to be reunited. In fact, they're going to be just right inside the gate. They'll be the first one to welcome us there. And we can begin to imagine those reunions that we will have with people who have already passed over that muddy Jordan and are right now experiencing their reward. But I'll tell you what, folks, the very best thing about heaven is that is where God is. We will live in his presence for eternity. We won't just sing about him. We won't just sit in Bible classes and talk about him. We will be communing with the God of the universe for eternity. And it makes you want to go ahead and be with God right now. I don't want to miss it. And that's why I prepare right now because heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. In heaven, as we oftentimes sing, will surely be worth it all. Here's a third reason why we need to prepare to meet God, and that is because of the abundant life here. The Bible teaches that the best possible life of, of all lives that we could live on this sin-cursed earth is the life lived for Jesus Christ. Remember that passage that we quote oftentimes from this pulpit, John 10, verse 10. Jesus said, a thief comes but to steal or kill or destroy. I have come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. Many people, as they look from the outside of the kingdom of Christ to the inside and see those of us who are members of that kingdom already, and who are to the best of our ability living our lives for Jesus Christ. He is the center and the comforts of our lives. They feel sorry for us. We feel sorry for them. They feel sorry for us. But you see, they don't know what we know. And they don't have what we have. 
And they don't realize that even if there were no heaven or hell, the best life that you could live is the life lived for Jesus Christ. If I didn't believe that, I'd be doing something else with my life. If you don't believe that, look closely at the life that's dominated by sin. Little wonder that Solomon said the way of the transgressor is hard. The world looks at that and says, bless those Christians' heart. They're just wasting their life, basing it on myths. No, the way of the transgressor is hard. Solomon says, not only are they going to have an eternal reward that they don't want even to begin to think about, and by reward, I mean a consequent of a life making wrong choices, but they don't know what it's like to live a life with purpose and meaning and happiness in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of the people, this is just my judgment, I noted as such, many of the people who serve as role models for some and idols for many in this world are not worthy of our attention, much less our imitation. There are people who are in bondage to and dominated by sin, but are they really happy? The Bible says no. There is no real peace outside of Jesus Christ. I know that because the Bible says so. Paul said if we will present our cares and our concerns to the Lord, then the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Jesus himself said in John 14, 27, as he was talking to his disciples then, and I believe this message is just as, as much for us today as it was for them. He said, I, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not, notice the, the qualifier, not as the world gives, give I unto you. In other words, Jesus is implying that there is a measure of peace, maybe like financial security that the world can provide. But he said, I want you to know that the peace that I'm giving to you is not like the world gives. And then he ends that by saying, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I know some scared and troubled people in this world. How about you? And how desperately and how urgently we need to get this, this good news to those people. To let them to know that the best life that you can live is the life lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's another reason. And I hate to bring this up, but I've got to preach the whole council. We need to prepare to meet God because of the reality of hell. The Bible teaches that. Right there it is. Black ink on white paper. And we can read over and over, especially in the New Testament, about the reality of that place. And I, I, I want to summarize everything that I could say about it this morning like this. Everything that, that heaven is, hell is not, and vice versa. That is, they are diametrically opposed to one another. You think of the grandeur and the beauty and the peace that heaven will represent and you take all that away and you have a place called hell. The Bible says that hell will be filled with pain. But in heaven there will be no more pain and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Revelation 21 verse 4 if you want the Bible for it. Heaven will be lived in God's presence as we talked about a moment ago. But the Bible also just as clearly says that hell is a place characterized by banishment from the presence of God for eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 9. Heaven is a place of eternal life. While hell is described in God's book as a place of outer darkness, heaven is where all the saints are. Hell is where all evil resides. In fact, the only thing that heaven and hell have in common, according to what the Bible says about it, is that both of them are eternal in nature. They are never-ending. Now, please understand this. A denial of hell 
does not remove the plain affirmations in Bible about it. Listen to Paul's logic in this matter over in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And, and one of the reasons I love Paul, one of the many reasons I love Paul's writings is because he's so logical. I mean, you can tell this guy is educated, and he, and, he, and he has a logical approach to his reasoning as he does in these two verses. He says, for what if some did not believe? You know, we're still having conversations like that today, aren't we? Well, you, you believe what you want to believe. I believe what I... There's your truth, and there's my truth. That's what the world would have you to believe. Paul said, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faith or the fullness, the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. So simply rejecting the idea of hell does not remove the reality of hell. You can reject anything you want, but that doesn't mean that it isn't so. Hell is described as a place that is a furnace of fire. Sometimes it's even described as a lake of fire. The same God that tells us about heaven tells us about hell. Why should we believe what he says about one, but disbelieve what he says about the other? And remember, Paul told us in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that God cannot lie. Here's another reason why we need to prepare. And I hope you're listening very carefully to this point as a child of God this morning, if you're already a New Testament Christian. And that is because of the tremendous impact of our own influence. There's not a person in this audience this morning who will not carry someone with them into eternity, either to one place or the other. That ought to sober us up. That ought to make us look more carefully at our own preparation to meet God in judgment. When we decide either for or against Jesus, every time we stand and sing an invitation song, decisions are made, sometimes for Jesus, sometimes against him. But I want you to know this morning, anytime you make a decision for or against Jesus, you are, in effect, making a corporate decision. Let me illustrate. One of the worst disasters in the annals of American history was the sinking of the Titanic in September of 1912. Everybody knows about it. We've seen the movies about it, and we've, some of us have read some books about it. And when she was on her maiden voyage, she started with approximately 2,200 passengers and was advertised, and you all know this, as being unsinkable. You got on board the Titanic. You didn't have to worry. You didn't have to lose any sleep on whether or not you're going to make your ultimate destination. But this was her maiden voyage. A man in the radio room, this is the part that many people don't know historically, received warnings that there were icebergs in the immediate area, but he did not heed those warnings. In fact, some reason that his thinking was, I'm on board an unsinkable ship. Why do we need to worry about icebergs? Ships that were 10 miles away heard those radio warnings. This man apparently heard them, but he did not heed them. And the rest, of course, of that tragic story is a matter of historical record. 1,500 people plunged into those icy waters and lost their lives that night. Thousands of lives. Hundreds of families were affected, watch this carefully, by that one man's decision to ignore the warnings. And people continue to be touched by that story and by its impact a hundred years later. Paul informed us that no man lives to himself, no man will die to himself. John Donne wrote, no man is an island, each is a part of the main. Folks, the sobering reality is your life touches someone else's life. In fact, it's been said that the shadow of your life will fall across a dozen lives. Before this day is done, 
So you and I need to prepare to meet God because of our powerful influence. I know of a man who was apparently sincere when he made the decision to become a New Testament Christian and to sign on to the Lord's army. But as the years of his life passed, other things began to take priority in his life, especially his business dealings. He was a businessman, as many people are, but he was very proud of the fact that he had been successful in his business dealings and began to be intent and focused only on, on his business life to the neglect of all spiritual matters. There were godly shepherds from the local congregation that went to him and entreated for him to come back and to repent. His children are now grown, and every one of them's lost. None of them have the slightest regard for spiritual matters. The man himself has been divorced and remarried four times over. What I'm trying to communicate is dozens of souls are lost in that man's family because of his decision to say no to God. Here is the eternal truth of the matter. You cannot say no to God by yourself. You will not spend eternity alone. And I'm telling you this not because it's not too late for any one of us this morning under the sound of my voice to make your life right with God, to prepare to meet God, to influence your loved ones in the right direction for the Lord. That's surely at least a part of what Paul meant over in Ephesians 5.16 when he said, buy up or redeem the time because the days are evil. Make the right decisions while, while you still can. Here's one other reason why we need to prepare to meet God, and that is because everything in life depends on it. You know, we've had several billionaires die in past years, and you've noticed that they die just like the rest of us. There's men like John D. Rockefeller, H.L. Hunt. There's Howard Hughes. There's Aristotle Onassis, just to name a few. And everything that they built and owned in this life and all of those billions of dollars in assets that they had in a bank or in some other investment was left behind. Listen to Scripture. Here's what Paul said in that rather elongated treatment about the danger of putting our trust in material things in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I believe that the thesis statement of that chapter is found in verse 7 when he says that we brought nothing into this world. Watch this carefully. Notice the certitude with which he makes the next statement. And it is certain that we will carry nothing out. It reminds me also of the story that I read of two servants, two men who had worked for Howard Hughes, were standing at his graveside next to the casket at his funeral. During the course of the funeral, one of them looked over at the other and whispered because nobody knew how much Howard Hughes really was worth. His assets, for the most part, were not liquidated, so nobody could really put a, a dollar amount on the billions that he did own because so much of it was in properties and other things. One whispered to the other, I wonder how much the old boy really did leave behind. And the other servant replied without hesitation, every bit of it. Maybe there's some consolation for us this morning to know that when we pass from this life, we will leave the exact same amount as Howard Hughes. We'll leave it all. We brought nothing into this world, and we'll take nothing out. The Lord wanted us to know, for what is a man profited if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16, 26. And folks, those are good questions. Two more questions, very quickly, and then the lesson is yours. Number one, how can we prepare? 
That depends on where you are on the spiritual spectrum. If you're a faithful child of God this morning, you're doing your dead level best to continue to walk in the light and to live the way the Lord wants you to live, then keep on keeping on being faithful. Live a life of faith. Continue to grow spiritually. But remember that when you're green, you grow. But when you get ripe, you start to rot. So always be growing. And if you're a Christian, but you're out of duty this morning, you're no longer faithful to the Lord or to his cause, then our admonition to you would be biblical. Repent and pray God that he might forgive you of your life of unfaithfulness and come back into fellowship with God and work and serve with him and for him faithfully again. And remember the promise that John gave us in 1 John 1, 9. If we will confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's got to be one of the greatest promises found anywhere in God's book. And if you've never become a New Testament Christian this morning, you have no better opportunity than right now to make that decision that will determine your eternal destiny. And the final question is this, when should I prepare? And I believe that you know the answer to that by now, even if you haven't been studying this issue at any other time in your life. The Bible says right now, immediately, is the time to prepare to meet God. Because Solomon warned, do not boast yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow may bring. Out of coincidence, I happened to be looking through the paper this morning at my kitchen table, and I read the obituaries. I like to check every morning at my age to see if I'm in there. And then I, as I've oftentimes said, then only ha my only concern is how did all those people manage to die in alphabetical order? But anyway, I don't know if this is true with most newspapers, but in the Montgomery Advertiser, if the information has been supplied, at the top of that listing, it gives the age. And there were people in their 90s who had passed from their life this week in Montgomery, Alabama. And there were people in their 30s who had died this week in Montgomery, Alabama. And there was a teenager who died. Solomon is right. Boast not yourself of tomorrow. For you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Or as we oftentimes sing, tomorrow's sun may never rise to bless our long-deluded sight. In John 9, 4, our Lord said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is yet day, for the night comes when no man can work. Most Bible commentators agree that that's a metaphor. The Lord wasn't telling us what shift he worked. He was talking about life and death. That's what day and night was referring to in that passage. And so he's saying the time will come when all of us will die. We need to work while we still have life in us. The master said to the penitent worker, go today and work in my vineyard. The author of Hebrews wrote, if you hear his voice today, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. Joshua wrote to vacillating Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. And Paul wrote, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. Folks, we need to constantly be reminded. Or at least we need to remind ourselves that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. Actuarial charts such as those possessed by and used by insurance companies, and I checked it to update my information just this week, indicate that in one minute around this world, 107 souls will pass into eternity. In one hour, 6,392 persons will have passed into eternity to meet God. 
In one day, 153,000 people on this planet will leave this life and transition into eternity. And every year, 56 million will stand before their God to be judged. Some of them will be young. And some of them will be old. And some of them will be somewhere in between. And one of them could be you or me. Prepare to meet thy God while we stand, while we sing. in his grace this hour are you washed in the blood of the lamb are you washed in the blood in the soul cleansing blood of the lamb are you God